0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're talking about being children of God. Good morning, children of God. It's great to, yeah, it's great to be here and uh, to be with you today. I have a question for you as we get started. How many of you here are hunters? Hunters, fishermen, uh, fisherwomen, whatever's the right language for all that, outdoors people, you kind of thing. Some of you are not going to judge you. Some of you are shaking on your thing. It's great. Uh, I'm not one, but I was thinking about this week how I used to hunt a little bit with my father-in-law. My wife thought it would be a good idea for me to spend time with him by hunting uh, and being outside with him. I don't know why. She hadn't done it, that's why. She hadn't been outside. Freeze your keister off. Have to get up at some ridiculous hour in the morning. But anyway, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. Uh, anyway, I remember this week, the first time I ever shot a deer. And I was out with Dave. Uh, my father-in-law's name is Dave. And he was, he was an avid outdoorsman. Like, he, had, he could, like, sniff out the deer. Like, he knew where they were going to be, all that stuff. And he would go out and he'd build out in the forest these little sheds. They call them deer blinds. And so think about how unnatural that is. The deer's not supposed to see you. We just built a shed right in the middle of where you live. If someone built a shed in your living room, you'd probably notice it and we'd spray paint them, because that's natural, and try and camouflage them, and put them out there, and we'd set them up, and I remember we were up in Michigan, it's super, like, what, you, what do you experience this morning if you were up at like 9, 10 o'clock or whatever? Um, that's summer in Michigan, just FYI. And so we'd go out in like November, freeze our keisters off, get up at some ridiculous hour in the morning, and we'd sit in these deer blinds, and if you've never hunted before, it's not the most active sport ever. Okay? There's no action until it's like the moment of the kill and we sat there one morning, and the sun came up, and it was getting close to lunchtime, and I decided he and I need to go get some lunch. And so I left the deer blind, and I started walking towards his deer blind, and I heard, bam, he shot. Smoke come out of the the little hut that he was in, and then he, bam, he shot again. I'm like, oh, whoa, what's what's going on here? He didn't sight his gun in, he had missed. That's what had happened. I thought he was shooting like a herd of deer, because what happened next is, bam, bam, bam. He shot like six or seven times. And so I got down on the ground. I literally started crawling towards his blinds. I knocked on the door when I got over there. He opens the door up. He says, Do you want to shoot a deer? I'm like, That's kind of why we're out here. And so he shows me, he only shot one of them. There was one dead body laying over there, dead dead deer body. And around the carcass of that deer was another deer grazing around getting food still. I'm like, She is stupid. I got to take her out of her. And so I sight her in. Bam! Down goes Frazier. Got my first deer field-dressed a deer with my father-in-law. It was a great memory with my father-in-law. But then, this week, as I was studying the passage, I started thinking about from the deer's perspective, from the perspective of the deer, what that was like. And I'm a father, too. And so all the, the shows that I watch with little kids, all the animals talk, just FYI. And I think someday I might come home and one of my dogs is going to say, hey, what's up? And i will be like, hey, don't think anything about it. What's up, dog? And I uh, see it right there. Some of you got that. At any rate... <clears throat> Or it was just really bad. <laughs> that might be it. That's all I got. That's what it is. And so I was imagining, like, what? Ha- so you don't see, if you're a hunter, you know this. But if you're, you're not a hunter, you don't know. Like, I shot, there's a little doe that was out there that I, that I shot that day. and so It wasn't Bambi, though. It was older than Bambi. No emails, please. And uh, you don't see the big trophy deer out at lunchtime in the middle of the day grazing around a shed that's built out in the woods. And so I started imagining, what about those big deer with, like, 18-point, 14-point, whatever, big spread rack on it? And I imagine it standing up on the ridge, because the spot where Dave had built this blind, there was like this, this valley that was down there, and there was an apple orchard. He knew the track that it went through to eat. There was an apple orchard across the street. They'd eat apples over there. Then they'd come across, it was like post-dinner meal or whatever. They'd eat this hay or straw, whatever was in this field, and he'd be able to just watch them come down there, and easy to shoot them. And I imagine standing up on this ridge, this big trophy deer, looking down with his son standing next to him. And the son about to run down in the valley and get the food. Been there a hundred times before. Knew that the food was good, it was an easy spot to get food, and it was safe. And then saying to his son, no, we don't eat there. We don't eat by those things. And shows the shed, the deer blind. And that's why he's got the big rack. And then the son's saying, but dad, it's safe. And he says back to his son, it's safe until it isn't. And how much is sin like that? It's safe until it isn't. If it wasn't easy, if it wasn't fun, no one would do it. And some of us, even because of our own natural desires, that we go after sin outside of God's plan. And we don't realize how dangerous it is until, bam! There's consequences. It's safe until it isn't. See, I think we live in a time where we're not passionate about purity. The church isn't talking about holiness because we don't realize the seriousness of sin. And today what we're going to talk about is the seriousness of sin. And my hope for you, for everyone that gathers in this place, for everyone that'll see this message online, is that we'll see the seriousness of sin, that God will reveal the seriousness of sin to us, and then we'll respond the way He tells us to respond in Scripture. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to continue on in the series we've been doing called Letters to RDU and First Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. We we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 last week. And today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Some of you have been with us through this whole series. If you have you're going to be shocked by verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you haven't been with us, we've been doing this series called Letters to RDU, studying this letter that was written a long time ago to a church in Corinth. And the reason why we're calling this Letters to RDU is because there's so many parallels between what was happening in that church then and what's happening in the church in the triangle Today. And we've talked about how they had the same temptation to bow their knee to the same unholy trinity we do, the trinity, the unholy trinity of sex and sports and success, instead of the holy trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so Paul writes this letter to correct a bunch of that stuff. And I told you that the very first week we were in this book, I talked to you about how sexualized Corinth was, how they had this temple of Aphrodite that would overlook the entire city. And in the evenings, a thousand temple prostitutes would come out. And sell their bodies as worship. That's how depraved they were. What I didn't tell you was that there's actually, they coined a term in that time period, even in other cities, they coined this terminology for people of Corinth. It was really a a synonym for debauchery. It was to Corinthianize. If you were to Corinthianize, it was a symbol of your drunkenness, your sexual immorality you would live in. And so if somebody told you your boyfriend or girlfriend was Corinthianized, your husband or wife has been Corinthianized, that's not a compliment. That's bad news. Okay, that's what it was like in the culture they were in. Now let me read you verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, the church, inside the church, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. What? If you don't know what a pagan is, what you're talking about this? a pagan is someone who's not a follower of Christ, maybe doesn't even think there's a God, just lives life, do, you do you, you live according to your own guide, you are your God. Even they are saying there's sin inside the church that they wouldn't even tolerate. Even pagans who've been Corinthianized. Verse 1 should be shocking. And he talks about what kind it is. For a man has his father's wife. We'll unpack that in a little bit. And you are arrogant. His rebuke's not actually to the man, just why, when we read through this. It's to the church. And you are arrogant, speaking to the church. Ought you not rather mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. You know, he said he's judging him. Doesn't the Bible say not to judge? We'll talk about that. When you are assembled in the, name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That sounds serious. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. That's a heavy passage. I'm talking here about sexual sin. You're going to see later in the passage verses 9 through 13 that it's not just about sexual sin. It talks about greed and other sins that are in there as well in the same category. So this isn't just about sexual sin, but thinking about what he's talked about so far, I think most of us here, even if you're a guest, would probably agree that we live in a time with rampant sexual immorality. And just to define that and make, make sure we're clear in what I'm talking about when I say that, uh, the Bible, God created sex. He's very creative, gave us an incredible gift of sex, and sex is to be celebrated between one man, one woman, and a marriage relationship. Everything else that's not that is sexual morality. So with that definition of mind, not what we've, you know, sometimes we think about sexual morality. we just think about like the grotesque, like ridiculous things that happen. With that definition of mind, think about how much you're exposed to that. Whenever you get on the internet, advertisements, I'm not even talking about like pornography. I'm just sex outside of marriage. I mean, it's being used to sell products everywhere, and you watch TV shows and movies, and it happens, and it's all over all the time. But even in that culture that we live in right now, even in a culture that right now will celebrate sexual immorality with rallies and gatherings and even using symbols from the Bible to endorse it, like even in that culture, there's things that pagans, non believers in this culture, think is out of bounds. I only have to mention some names to you and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Bill Cosby, Larry Nasser, Harvey Weinstein. There's, there's things that even non-believers that go, nope, that's, that's out of bounds. And the, the temptation for us to read a passage like this and we go, well, that will not happen in the church. Let me point you to an article that came out in February a few weeks ago in the Houston Chronicle about the Southern Baptist Convention, which we are a part of, by the way, the largest denomination in America, where this pagan newspaper, non-believers, writing this newspaper, wasn't a Christian newspaper, was calling out the Southern Baptist Convention because what they had been doing for years, 20 years, the article covered, was hiding behind the autonomy of the local church. Each church governs themselves. You don't have, to, you don't have a person, like a pope or somebody telling you, this is how you have to do stuff. And they wouldn't create a database to show who are the sexual predators that have been going around to these different churches. And so if you read the article, what you'll see is it... it it chronicles over 200 different sexual predators, 700 victims, over 20 years, and they, the pagans, then had to do for the church, put together a database of saying, here's who all the predators are, so they can't just come from church to church. So lest we think it couldn't happen in the church, it could. And before I jump on the text more, um, let me just pause and pastorally say, some of you have been abused, and we want to be as a church a safe place for you and a safe place for you to experience healing. And we've got people that we love to point you to, professional folks that we love to point you to. We've got safe people in our church. Some of them will be up here to pray with after the service if you'd like to pray. Um, they would love to pray with you. And let me also say, if you're a sexual predator, we do everything we can for this to not be a safe place for you, to come and pray on people. And so beyond just background checks for people that work with kids, we're constantly working to come up with policies and ways to see these things ahead of time. But if you're ready to repent, we'd love to talk with you doesn't mean there aren't going to be consequences for what you've done, but we do not want this. To, we, we want to lovingly expose your sin for your good and the sake of your soul and the safety of the other people in this church. But what we can't do is be unaware that it's possible that it could happen here. And not, we can't be unaware of how serious the sin is. And so when you look at a passage of Scripture like this, it's easy to be like, well, I'm not attracted to my stepmom, or I'm not attracted to my mom, so this isn't really... No, that's not that he's rebuking the church for not taking sin seriously. So our main point today is this, is that sin is like a deadly sickness. That sin is like a deadly sickness. And you're gonna see, we didn't read verses six through eight yet, but he's gonna talk about how it can spread. He's a little leaven, leaven's the whole loaf, and he's talking about how it can spread, it's contagious, and leaven, leaven raises bread up, and you put a little bit in, and it impacts the whole batch. And when there's sin in the camp, there's sin in the church, and you, you ignore it, that's not an example of grace. That's that you don't realize how serious sin is, that sin is like a deadly sickness. I'm going to imagine, I was telling somebody before the first service about just, I have allergies, and I like that it was colder outside today uh, when we came in here, because what happens is it rained for like three weeks, and then it got warm all of a sudden, and so then it's like, no, it's not pollen season, but it feels like pollen season. Like, my eyes are itching, and I'm going to guess all of you have experienced some of that, like some level of sickness in your life, and you know at different levels of sickness, you do different things to respond to it. So if it's pollen, you kind of push through, eyes water, nose runny or whatever, maybe take some allergy medicine. If you get like the gunk, a virus, the flu, you probably go to the doctor and then get, maybe don't go to work, nobody wants to be around that, just FYI, you don't need to be coming in there and showing what a hard worker you are, work from home, we're great. Um, And maybe there's another level of sickness that a high percentage of you never experienced before, it's called a man cold. It's like another level of sickness. That just because some of you could never experience in your life, can I tell you what it's like to experience a man cold? I've had it on more than one occasion. It's awful. The entire universe stops and begins to revolve around you in that moment as a man. And what you really need in that moment is someone to bring you a little bell so you can ring it anytime you have a need. They can come meet it and they can prop your legs up and bring you ice chips and all those scratch your head or whatever you need in that moment. Now, my wife is a nurse. They didn't have man-cold class for some reason. I don't know why. She's a loving woman. She's a caring woman. Do you know what happens at my house when I get a man-cold? If you're that sick, we're putting you in quarantine. Stay in your room. Don't come out. None of us want any of that. You know where the medicine is. You can find it. So please say something to her after the service. I would love that. It would be great. But you know there's levels of sickness. It just keeps going up. Maybe allergies, and you get a virus, and you get a man-cold. But if you have, like, gangrene... And cutting it off, right? Whatever it is, arm, leg, whatever. You get cancer? You got having a heart attack, pull out the defibrillator, like we're gonna respond to that. Here's the problem with sin is that many of us treat sin like a man cold. We can talk a lot about it at church, and the preacher might rail against it, but it's really not that big of a deal. Here's the reality sin is deadly. There's a way that seems right to man, and it leads to death. The wages of sin is death. What does James say about sin? In James, in James chapter 1, he says this. You talk about that deer analogy. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The deer is just going to get some food, right? The fish is just grabbing a little food when they get hooked. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. See, we lack a passion for purity because we don't have a seriousness for sin. There's a this theologian from the 1600s named John Owen. He said be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See so many of us we just don't realize what's happening because we don't realize how serious the sickness of sin actually is. And you read something like this and this, how does this guy that we read about in verse 1? How does he even get to that spot? Like think about this. If even the pagans think this is a, like unthinkable sin, how'd this guy end up here? It says in verse 1 that he's he has he's with his fathers' wife. That's not his mom, or else it would just say that it's his mom. And so this might be a woman that his father was married to before his mom. And it might be a woman that he was married to after maybe his mom died. We don't know the exact scenario. We don't get all the details here in this passage, but just think of like imagine that mom died, and then Dad remarried, maybe faster than everybody was ready for, and she was younger. And so the son was like, Well she's she's kind of cute. But it's my so stepmom. I, said, mom, I never think about that. And then Dad dies. Well, she's a widow and He's got all the money. And next thing you know, they're together. How do you get there? Can I tell you how? Justification and rationalization and lots of small steps, just like David with Bathsheba. You see, we've all done it at different levels. There's a saying about sin. And I don't know who was the first person to say it, but is that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's always true. Sin costs, and it always costs more than we're willing to pay. This man ends up here, but then, then Paul's not rebuking the man. He, he's assuming the church has already done some of this, but he's saying, you're arrogant. He's rebuking the church, verse 2, and you are arrogant. They're going, what a cute couple. How do they get there? How do they get to the spot where they're bragging about this man being in their church in this sin? Well, there's a few ways. One is, maybe they're saying, oh, we just, we're such a gracious community. Everybody's welcome in this community. We're so gracious. We're open-minded. We're tolerant. And they think they're, exe- they're showing, exemplifying grace, and they're actually cheapening grace. Because they're making it worth nothing. See, sin's so serious, Jesus Christ had to die for it. And they're acting like it's no op- they're bragging about it in their midst. Maybe it's their freedom in Christ. And, and they're saying, we're, we're all free. We can all do different. If, that, if that's what works for them, then they'll do that. And Paul's going, how do you get to that spot? How you? Bring? And then he says, ought you not to mourn? And so if we want to know how we should respond to this sickness, because every kind of sickness requires a different kind of response. This deadly sickness of sin, we must mourn sin. We must mourn over sin. Paul said in verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? how do you get to a spot like that i'm going to tell you how the same way those rich parents got to the spot where they were at this week with the college scandal oh i'm going to help my kids i'm going to use my power i'm going to use my money i'm going to use my position next thing you know they're facing 20 years in jail for fraud sin will always take you farther than you want to go and it always costs you more than you want to pay and that's where this church is at Paul's saying you need to mourn over this and paul himself does it there's another letter Written by Paul to this church in the Bible called 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about how they, some of them didn't repent when he warned them in the first letter. He says this 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I might have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, sensuality that they've practiced. And so here he models for them the response. He says, oh, you, shouldn't you be mourning over this? And he says, I'm more, I mourn over your, not even his own sin. He says, I'm mourning over your sin because you haven't repented. Because you know why? Because you're connected in the body of Christ. So I'm not talking to you if you're a guest, but we're all connected for part of the body of Christ. He says, we're supposed to mourn. Let me ask you this question. When you think about your life. When have you ever mourned? When do you weep in your life? Because I think about it for myself. And there are things that will happen that touch my heart that make me tear up. watch a movie and get teared up. hear about injustice, get teared up. It's moving. Some of you share a burden, and I might get teared up because I'm emotionally moved. That's not weeping. Like, when have you wept? For me, I've wept when I've experienced great loss. Like, when my dad died, I wept. My father-in-law died, I wept. When I'm losing something that's significant to me, I weep. This word for mourn in verse 2, it's used to speak of great loss. In fact, Mark chapter 16, verse 10, you can look it up on your own later, the, the same words used there for people who mourning the loss of Jesus, when Jesus died. You read the book of Revelation, there's three times this word used in the book of Revelation. Every time it's to talk to, about somebody who experienced great loss. And so why would Paul say to us here, you should mourn over this, man, this other person's sin in the church? Let me tell you why. Because sin has ripple effects. Have you ever been to a lake before and thrown a, a, a big rock in the water? And maybe it's a glassy smooth lake. You throw that rock in it kaplunk, you know, it splashes. But then afterwards, what do you have? You get that, those circular, the ripple effects that come out. There's this ripple that happens and sin always has that. Have you ever been in a uh, battlefield some of you have been on? Have you ever been in a car accident? There's shrapnel. There's, there's stuff that happens to bystanders, innocent bystanders, because of what happened at that moment. Your sin has that kind of effect. All of our sin does. I remember one time I was in seminary, in a New Testament class, New Testament survey, wasn't even part of the class, and a professor just stopped and he started talking to us about if he ever had an affair on his wife, what would happen. And he told us he had actually spent a day making a spreadsheet, writing down all the lives that would be impacted if he ever cheated on his wife. And he said it wasn't long before the circle, the ripple effect, started to get bigger than people I even knew who they were. And he said, you know, they start off with my family and my kids, then my kids' friends, then their parents, some of whom I haven't met, and then my Sunday school class, then my students at the seminary. And he started going through. And I thought, and I wasn't even, I wasn't a pastor at the time, wasn't up on a stage talking to a bunch of people. And I thought, what if I did something really stupid? So I started jotting down. It wasn't long before I got to people, I didn't even know who they were. It would impact their lives, their view of Jesus, non-Christians, their view of the church, all of those things, of course. But then the people that I like—what about those of you who have secret sin? Nobody knows that you're even doing it. Oh, it impacts them. It impacts every relationship you have. You just don't realize it because sin is deceptive. You want to you see some impacts? Go read that article, the Houston Chronicle article. You'll see it. there's stories in there of some of the victims. There's one girl named Heather Snyder. She was abused in a church in Houston when she was 14 years old. The next day, slit her wrist, but survived. Then 14 years later, she died of a drug overdose our mom talks about it in the article, and the mom says, we never got her back. One selfish act by one guy in a church, and it didn't just impact that woman who died. It didn't just impact that mom. It's a ripple effect. The whole church, the community, like sin. We should mourn sin because it's so significantly serious. It impacts all. If you want examples in the Bible, how about Adam and Eve? All they did was take some fruit and the New Testament it says it just says through one man. But didn't Eve take the fruit? And Adam was being passive and not fulfilling his responsibility as a husband. Just through one man. Romans 12. Romans 5:12. Sin entered the world. So all of us have become sinners. We've all done it. Achan. Have you read that story? Read that in Joshua chapter seven. In the context right before that, one guy gets, he becomes covetous, takes something that belonged to him, steals, then lies about it because sin happens to heap sin upon sin. By the way. 36 men die in the battle, 36 lives then lost because this one guy lies. A whole nation is dishonored, and here's the worst part. God is dishonored. Every time any of us sin, because every time we sin, we're saying that something's more valuable than him. See, there's a ripple effect, and there's always a loss. One loss that's easy to see simply is this, you might be a believer in Jesus Christ. You cannot lose your union with God. You're always, you are a child. You'll always be a child. But you can lose your communion with God. So you lose fellowship in that moment. It breaks fellowship in, that, in our horizontal, not just our vertical relationship, but our horizontal relationship with one another. It impacts. You don't think that your secret sin impacts the way you relate with everybody around you. You're deceiving yourself. And what did James say? It's deceptive. In the end, it leads to death. See, there's always loss and so when, other, when we see sin in the lives not just in our, own, in our own lives for sure but when we see sin in the lives of other people we should mourn because we have to know the path they're headed down and the loss that they're experiencing with God with other people and then what we see here and we'll talk more about it as we get towards the end of this passage is he, he's talking about a loss of a member of the church he's saying you've got to remove them you can't let them keep being a member of the church and act like everything's okay they're unrepentant they're unresponsive you need to, you need to deal with that and we'll get to that there's a loss there See, our sin impacts everybody else we come into contact with. And so I know, I know this passage isn't the most seeker-sensitive passage. It isn't like, hey, my pastor's preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Bring your friends. This isn't what you preach you want to grow a church. But let me tell you something. This is what you preach if you care about the people that are in the church. And so I'm going to ask you to do something right now It's not super seeker-sensitive. Like, this is what happens at church. Everybody comes. You sit. Everybody looks forward. You look at one guy the whole time. I want you to look at each other. Ooh, that's weird. All right, turn to your left make a little eye contact, turn to your right, make a little eye contact, you're on the front, I want John White. you got to look backwards, why don't you do something radical, some of you look backwards. See those people, I see you, you gotta look, come on, staring at me still. Come on, top, look around. Your sin impacts all those people. Unless you're a guest, I mean, if this is your church, if you're a guest, I'm talking to you, but if you're, and thank you, please come back again, we know do this every week, I promise. Um, <clears throat> But if this is your church, your sin impacts all those people. You just don't realize the ripple that's happening and how you relate with them. And so what do we do? What do we do? Like, we're supposed to mourn over it. Yes, yeah, so that's an emotion. What's the action? What do we do? Well, look at the next part of the passage. And let me tell you the next subpoint here is this. We must judge. Yes, I said that. We must judge sin in, you might underline that, those of you who take notes, in the church. We usually get this wrong. We judge sin outside the church. We don't judge sin in the church. Doesn't the Bible say don't judge? We'll talk about that in just a second. Let me read you the passage. Verse 2, we already got the first part. And you are arrogant. You're saying, oh, what a cute couple. Ought you not rather to mourn? Don't you care about these people? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Verse 3, here's the reason why. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's saying, I've already judged this guy. He's a brother. He's claiming to be a follower of Jesus judge him but doesn't the bible say don't judge probably the most famous verse in the bible right now in our day and time it's not john 3:16 anymore it's probably matthew 7:1. and if you see it on a poster usually at a protest somewhere by the way uh it'll be and they should if they're going to write the verse on there you got to give the context matthew it should be matthew 7:1 through 5 not just matthew 7 1 but matthew 7 1 and if they write it out it's funny to me they always write it out in the king james like people who never read the bible you're going to grab one you grab the king james really it says, judge not, lest ye. Who says ye? <laughs> How ye doing today? Like, who says that? <laughs> judge not, lest ye be judged. And so people say, don't judge. It's like the worst thing you could commit today. Don't judge anybody. Let me just read you that passage in its context and read you all five verses. And you know what you're going to see? What Jesus, Jesus is the one talking. Jesus is actually rebuking people for not judging like he does. See, we're supposed to judge. Here's the problem for Christians. We judge the wrong people about the wrong things and in the wrong way. Christians are supposed to judge the right people, each other, in the right way, not as a hypocrite. But like, like you can't, it's not like the, you know, all of us have gotten this look before. You wear the wrong clothes to an event or to church or something. Somebody gives you that look. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about judge. And we judge, we're not supposed to judge motives. Nobody knows motives. He just talked about that in chapter 4. Paul said he didn't even know his own heart. He said, my conscience is clear. That doesn't mean I'm good. God's going to be my judge. So we don't, we can't judge motive, but we can judge. we know sexual immorality, we know greed, we know swindlers, we can judge actions amongst believers, but look at how Jesus says to do it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, it'll be judged, you will be judged. Listen, we're all going to be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the logs in your own eye? If you're going to try and restore somebody and their sin, then you better deal with your own sin first. So Galatians chapter 6 talks about this. He was spiritual, going and help the person who's fallen into sin, but, but, but don't be tempted. You might be self-righteous, you might be tempted into their sin. Be careful. Jesus says this, you don't notice the log is in your own eye? or How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? And he says, here's the problem, you're judging like a hypocrite. You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then, he doesn't say not to deal with the speck in the brother's eye. He says, but first you deal with your own stuff. Then, get the speck out of your brother's eye. Why? Judge like Jesus. He cares about you. That's Why? It's a judgment that's for you. It's not, let me, I'm going to prove something. Look how much better I am than you. I'm going to condemn you, make you feel bad. No, it's not that. So here's an, the application of that we need to judge people in the church is not we need to start like a morality police team at our church, okay? That's following everybody around and finding out who's sinning the most. They stand out by the donut table. Two donut holes. Hmm, last week it was just one. We'll see what happens next week. It's hmm. <laughs> checking it out. It's like follow, making sure there's no gluttony in the church. Making sure there's no, that's kind of a nice car. How much do you make? And it's greedy. What's the like, we don't need, that's not, that's the opposite of what's being talked about, but we're good at applying this passage the opposite way. Look at what Paul says next, by the way. he says in verse uh, 9 through 13, after the eleven illustration, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, he had written a letter before First Corinthians. They misunderstood some stuff. So he's going to clarify it here. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. <laughs> not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd, you'd need to not live here. And that's what many Christians try to do, by the way, with all of our holy huddles. he says, you need to go out of the world. But now, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard. So it's not just sexual immorality. A drunkard? Can you think about if we treated greedy the same as we treated sexual immorality? Or swindler, somebody who's taken other stuff by force? Not even eat with such a one. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Isn't it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In other words, judge actions, not motives. Judge believers, not non-believers. Judge like Jesus, not like Pharisees. See, here's the reality. We flip this passage around. If you don't think that's true, just think about what happens. We're supposed to be in the world. How can you win the world of Christ if you don't have any non-believing friends? And so what a lot of times we do as a church, he's saying, you'd have to leave this world and your mission is to be in this. There's a reason why when you trust Jesus, you didn't get beamed up to heaven. You got a job while you're here. Supposed to win lost people to Christ, then disciple them to be followers of Jesus that can win lost people to Christ. And and instead what we do oftentimes in America today, a lot of our Christian subsects, is we come together and we'll have like Christianized everything. But Christian gathering, Christian studies, and get your Christian Bible studies, and you get your Christian book studies, you're not even studying a Christian book, but it's all Christians, and we got 40 of them, and there's one non-Christian, that's our project. (laughs) And your Christian aerobics class, and your Christian sports team, and your Christian school, and and everything's a Christian gathering, and every once in a while we'll run out there and talk to those naughty people, and tell them why their ethics should be the same ethics we have, and Paul's going, why do you expect a non-believer to act like a believer? Why are you yelling at politicians that they need to have Christian values if they're not even Christians? Why why are we because we've done the opposite of what this passage is talking about? You have to be in this world. They should be greedy. They should be sexually immoral. They don't have Jesus. Why do you expect them to act like Jesus? But you should be like Jesus. And it's not that it's wrong to have Christian fellowship. You should be plugged into your church. You should have Christian relationships. But if every area of your life is that now it's this Christian aerobics class and Christian recycling group and Christianized, you've tried to leave this world. You've got to be in this world, but you're not of this world. And so they should look at you and see that you're different. And the problem that was happening in this church is they've got a guy who's living just like he's not a Christian, but claiming that he is a Christian, and they're going, We're cool. It's good. And he's going, No, you've got to judge those in the church. But you judge like Jesus judges. I'm judging this guy. You see, for his sake. Did you see verse 5? Verse 5 says, Hand him over to Satan. That's pretty harsh. Not so he will be destroyed, but so there's the sin in his life, his flesh, shall be destroyed. And then it goes on, so that he's going to be saved. So You're judging him because you care about him. And so what do we do? Third sub-point. We've got to deal decisively with sin in the church. We've got to deal decisively with sin in the church. Not like those deer, hey, we just play around with it like a fish with a little bait. I just want to see. It's safe. It's safe until it isn't. And what Paul's saying is, it isn't safe. You can't play around with it. And you've seen here in in verse 2, he said, to remove the person. Remove them from covenant membership. Verse 7 says the same thing. Verse 13 we saw. Verse 5, you see, it's repeated through. Like, don't miss this. You've got to deal decisively with this. And he gives this example in verses 6 through 8, which we kind of went over quickly. But it says, in in verse 7, he says this. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are. Remember we did our message on identity? He's saying, be who you are. You're unleavened. What's he talking about? Well, leaven's an illustration we see throughout the Bible, yeast, leaven, something that causes the dough to rise. You put a little bit in there, and it the whole loaf is impacted by it. So there's a ripple effect. We get the idea there. Usually it's used negative. One time it's used positive, talking about the kingdom of God, but it's it's an influence. It's a small influence. It has a big effect. He's saying, "But, but you're holy. You've been made holy by the blood of Christ. And so live Holy. Take your holiness seriously, because look at the the next part of the analogy. He's talking about unleaven, which alludes to the exodus. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, now he makes it really clear, has been sacrificed. What he's talking about is in the Old Testament, there's a book called Exodus, and we sang some lyrics that alluded to the story of being led across the Red Sea. It's the ultimate picture of salvation in the Old Testament. Points us to Christ. But the story that came right before that was that all the people were wicked, and God was going to send a judgment on them. A death angel that was going to come and the firstborn son was going to be killed in every home unless there was one way and only one. Unless you killed a sacrificial lamb and took the blood from the lamb, put it on the doorpost of your house, then when the death angel came, it would pass over, that's where that language comes from, pass over your house. It was God's grace. It was his way to, to, to deal with your sin, was the shedding of blood. Now maybe you're a guest and you're like, why does blood have to be shed? Why does somebody have to die to deal with my sin? Here's why, because God's holy and none of us are holy. And his holiness means he can't have sin in his presence. We've all sinned. Every person here in this church, if anyone's made you think that they think they don't sin, we all sin. Everybody here sins. The difference is some people have been cleansed of their sin by the blood of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ didn't sin. And he went to the cross and he died because that was God's solution to the problem. That I can't have sin in my presence and I want to have a relationship with all these people. And so I'm going to give my firstborn son And he's going to die on the cross, and he's going to shed his blood. And everybody who bows their knee and calls upon Jesus Christ will be cleansed by that blood. And what Paul's saying here is, your your lamb has been sacrificed. His name was Jesus Christ. And so you've been made holy. That's called justification in the Bible. You've been justified, cleansed of your sin. You are being sanctified. You're being transformed from your sin. You will be glorified. And he's saying, you've been justified, so let's see it in your sanctification. You're, you're positionally, you've been made holy, practically live it out. And here's how, take sin seriously. That I means not only mourning over it, not only seeing it in the lives of others, but you've got to do something in their lives. And what Paul's alluding to in this passage when he talks about removing this person, verse 5, verse 7, verse 2, verse 13, sounds pretty harsh. But he's going back to some teaching by Jesus. Because some people are like, well, Jesus, he's, he's cool with everybody. No, Jesus talks about this. In Matthew chapter 18, we start reading verse 15. He says, if somebody sins against you, go tell all your friends to start praying for them. That's not what he says, is it? That's what some of us do. That's called gossip. It's our prayer group. No, it's called gossip. (laughs) He says, if somebody sins against you, you deal with it one-on-one. You go to that person. And if they see their sin, you've won them. You've done work for their soul because you care about them. What if they don't? And he says, go get a small group. And he's telling us how to do church restoration. Some people call it church discipline, but the goal ultimately is not punishment, it's to restore the person to fellowship with God. He says you go to them with a small group, but not your small, not like your whole small group. Some of you are like 10 people, 12 people, 14 people, how many of you are in your small group? No, like two or three is the, what Jesus says. Get two or three people, go to them with two or three people, and then and if they if you, if they repent, if you come you've won them. And can I tell you that church restoration, church discipline, 99% of the time happens at that level? that it wasn't designed to be something where there's like a morality board that checks and sees how bad everybody's sin is. When you go with those two or three people, you probably don't need a pastor. You probably don't need an elder. You probably need the people that are the closest to that. Whoever's in relationship, if that happens to be a pastor or elder, that's fine, but whoever's closest in relationship, that that person knows you're coming because you love them and you care about them and you're trying to restore them, it's supposed to happen organically amongst relationships that we have with one another. But if they still don't respond, and he says, go tell it to the church. And the church confronts them in their sin then. And then if they still don't respond, Jesus tells us there's four steps. The fourth step is, treat them like a pagan, a tax collector. Paul says here, remove them from membership. What he's saying is, you can't let them keep acting like they're a Christian. So they shouldn't be coming up and grabbing communion, acting like they're in good fellowship with God when they've got sin. That they, It's the unresponsive, unrepentant person that proclaims to be a believer in Jesus Christ. If you care about them, he says. Turn them over to Satan. That's harsh. What you're saying is this church has no covering for you. There's no prote- you want your sin? You want to keep shacking up with your dad's wife? Go you go do that. But don't proclaim that you're a believer. Don't act like, don't act like you and God are good, because you're not good. And we just want to be really clear about that. You're not a member here. You're, you're, not, you're not welcome to anything that's exclusive for believers, we're treating you like a non-believer. What does that mean? That means we're pleading for your soul. So that hopefully you'll be redeemed here, now. That you don't have to stand before God and God says, depart from me, I never knew you. You think you're a believer, but you're living like a non-believer. and So we're gonna treat you like a non-believer. That our point when, hang, when hanging out with you, when talking to you, is to plead for your soul. Do you ready to repent? Do you wanna come back? Do you wanna deal with that sin? Now, hey, did you see do you can't see? And just acting like everything's cool. Because he's saying you gotta take sin seriously. But get this, if, if, that person repents? You have a party. Because repentance leads to revival. Repentance leads to revival. And see, Paul says here that the point of this is not to punish this person. It's not punitive. See, the punishment was poured out at the cross of Jesus Christ. What you're trying to do is point that person to the cross. This is redemptive, what happens here. You're restoring this person to fellowship. Verse 5, what did he say in in verse 5? In verse 5 he said, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let me tell you something. These are hard words. I remember a member of our church coming to me one time way back at the movie theater and saying, Hard words produce soft hearts. Soft words oftentimes produce hard hearts. And so I realize these are hard words. And they were hard words for that man and for that church. This guy's not named, so we don't know for sure what happened. But many Bible scholars believe that this man repented because of this. And it's based on the second letter that we have in our Bible, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the church has talked about a guy who caused great pain. And he says to them, You forgive that man, bring him back. In 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 7, it says this verses 9 through 11 As it is, I rejoice. So some people think that Paul's talking about this situation in 1 Corinthians 5. Not because you were grieved, he told him to mourn, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. So there's a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss. Remember why we mourn when we lose something significant? He's saying you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's calling us to a repentance. Do you know why? Because repentance leads to revival. Revival, reviving, bringing revival revival back in. And so Jesus, when he was dead, and he was in the grave for three days, and then he breathed, he started breathing, there was breath in his lungs. He was revived, brought back to life. And the means for that for us is repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance, simple definition is to stop and turn. The way that I teach it to my, my daughters at our house is we'll be in the kitchen, and I'll set up something that's got to be tempting, candy bar, ice cream, and I'll say, come here, honey, and I'll grab them, and I'll say, run towards that thing. And as they're running, I always go, stop. Sometimes they stop. <laughs> and I say, turn around. and Come back. And at that moment, when, and when they come back, I can grab their face and say, listen, I can give you a 1,000 candy bars if I think that's what's best for you. I can give you thousands of gallons of ice cream. I can give you, I have the ability to give you the things that you want. But do you trust me that what I'm giving to you is what I think is best? You see, repentance is you stop. It's not just, hey, cut out your naughty behavior. It's you've been valuing something above God. There's a way that seems right to man and it leads to death. And you turn and you turn back to God. You've been going away from God, it's turning back to God. And repentance leads to revival. And it's like God shouts that to us throughout the Bible, just so you know. If you don't get this, read this story. Nope, see this scenario. Watch this. the, here's the clear verses, state of the New Testament. It's the saving of a soul. If the, whatever circumstances are necessary to come into their life so that they'll turn to me, bring those. Because repentance leads to revival. Read the Old Testament. You come to these stories, and you see people, that, all of God's people, all the Israelites, didn't have the Bible, so they weren't obeying the Bible. Ezra starts reading it in the book of Nehemiah. He doesn't preach it. Can you imagine just, just going to start reading this thing? And people start going, we're not doing that. And they repent, and it leads to revival. See, Job, read the book of Job. Job doesn't have the circumstances in his life he has because of his sin, but because of the circumstances in his life, he sins. And he says things that are not true about God in the midst of his suffering. And read Job chapter 42 in verse 3. He says, I spoke as a man without knowledge. In verse 6, he says, I repent. He stopped, he turned back to God, and repentance leads to revival. Have you read the book of Jonah? We always talk about Jonah. Jonah's like, that's the worst part of the whole book is Jonah, by the way. He's a racist, he's a disobedient prophet. He doesn't wanna go preach to the Ninevites. Do you know why? Because the Ninevites are awful. Like, incredibly violent, awful people. The Assyrians is who they are. And do you know what Jonah says? He says, because I knew if I told them the truth that you were slow to anger, abounding in love, and if they repented, you'd be gracious. You know what happens in that book? They repent, and God is gracious. You know why? Because repentance leads to revival. The classic example is David. When you read the Old Testament, David covered up his sin, then sins more, covers it up more, and and sin is this cycle, and it's leading him astray. And then you know what happens? He repents. Read Psalm 51. And you know what he says? Against you and you alone, God, did I sin. What about Uriah? You killed him. What about Bathsheba? What about that child? Yeah, but first and foremost, our sin is a dishonor to God. So no matter what our sin is, we're sinning against a holy God. And he repents. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And God does. Because repentance leads to revival. Read the New Testament. Look at Peter. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Really? These are the very people that nailed Jesus to the cross. And Peter says to them, you killed, God put on flesh, came here, you killed him. And they go, what do we do? Repent. And that's how the church got started. 3,000 repenting sinners. And you know what the church consists of today? People who, that's how you, if you have a relationship with God, it started because you turned from your sin and you turned to God. You can't be a Christian without repentance. So you repented. But some of us think that's just how we start. Repentance should be a regular part of our journey. Read Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. It's a picture of our Heavenly Father that Jesus is giving. There's a guy who goes off, and he thinks he knows his own way, and he's squandering his life. He's wasting his life, and he realizes, I'd be better off being a slave in my father's house. And so he goes back home, and you know what the father does? The father sees him and runs to him. That's your heavenly father. Repentance leads to revival. Southbridge, we need repentance, because we need revival.